Well, local governments sometimes feel like they're at the bottom of the food chain. <laughs> they're getting commandments from the federal government and state governments. But we do have a lot of local autonomy in the United States. Now, this does vary from state to state. Depends on the state constitution. It depends on whether the state constitution provides for home rule, for example, which provides a little bit more autonomy than the traditional Dillon's rule of more constraints on local government. But the reality of today, you talked about muddy areas, and I, that's a good point. It's an interesting way to put it. Virtually all public policy today is intergovernmental. And that is, you see the federal, state, and local governments involved in every policy area from domestic policy to foreign policy. And so our system is so intergovernmentalized today that it's become more difficult to say there are sharp divisions between the different governments as opposed to this kind of intergovernmental cooperation and sometimes coercion that occurs among the federal, state, and local government. We've been having conversations about building relationships across academia and local government lately. And today we have a very different model to share with you. My guests come from two different worlds, but share a common work environment, which enables them to have conversations all the time. You will learn how this synergy benefits both of them. Professor John Kincaid is a world-renowned scholar on American federalism with many distinguished honors and is director of the Minor Center for State and Local Government at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. As Associate Director of Public Service and former Borough Manager, Nicole Beckett provides outreach and works directly with local governments. I am excited about this episode for two reasons. One, we talk about what the Minor Center does for local governments, and two, Professor Kincaid provides a mini-lecture on federalism. Frankly, I learned so much from him during this episode and leading up to it. I am honored to have Nicole and Professor Kincaid with us today to talk about the challenges of local government from academic and practitioner perspectives. Check out the show notes to see highlights from today's episode, as well as more complete background information for Professor Kincaid and Nicole Beckett. Before we take off, I ask Professor Kincaid how he likes to be addressed, and he obliged me. Normally, I prefer professor when people ask for the formal title or on campus with students and so on. But when I'm outside of the college, I don't care about that at all. So it doesn't bother me. And usually if you're really working with people, you're on a first name basis in the final analysis. So I really don't insist on people calling me professor or doctor outside of the Students do it naturally, so to speak, but not outside of the academic world. Yeah. It feels rather natural to to address you by Professor Kincaid today because you're going to be talking about your research and your role as a professor. So I'm going to continue that way. But it's good to know, and I think it's good for others to to also just hear how you feel about that or your preferences for that. So thank you for that introduction. I'd like to start out at the beginning and Professor Kincaid, you are the person to give us that history of where the Minor Center began. The Minor Center opened in 1994. 
when I came to Lafayette from Washington, D.C. as the first director of the center. And uh, it also involves an endowed chair, some officially the Robert B. and Helen S. Minor Professor of Government and Public Service, and then also director of the Minor Center for the Study of State and Local Government. The center was made possible by an endowment contribution from the estates of Robert and Helen B. Minor. And they were very interested in having a unit at Lafayette College because Robert Minor had graduated from Lafayette in 1930, and he became governor of New Jersey, he served from 1954 to 1962, and his wife, Helen, served in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1975 to 1976. So they were forming a center that would help to re educate students about the importance of state and local government and encourage students to become involved with state and local government and also be interested in pursuing careers in state and local government or elected positions in state and local government. So that's both the background and the main function of the Minor Center. You mentioned in our earlier conversation that the deed was not altogether clear in terms of the purpose and the mission that you have been helping to shape over time. Could you say more about that? Yeah, it was ambiguous in terms of, it's called the Center for the Study of State and Local Government, but we're a small college and we can't really encompass what is normally thought of as a center for the study of something with multiple faculty members and so on. So in trying to define the mission of the center, I felt that it would be most important to develop links with local and state officials outside of academia as a way of creating possibilities for internships over the long run. And so that led to the decision to, instead of establishing an associate director for research, an associate director for public service, who would have outreach responsibilities, and that's the position that Nicole Beckett presently fills. And so that position has really gone to people who have real-life experience in local government. So the previous person who held the position for 16 years was a former city manager of Quakertown, and Nicole is also a former city manager. So they seem to me to be the best type of people to recruit for that kind of outreach because I'm also limited in my outreach as a professor. I have a lot of teaching and research duties and committee duties on campus. And so I don't have the time available to be out there in the field really relating to state and local officials to the extent that the associate director is able to do so because that's the definition of that position. Yeah, There's something very unique, and I want you to talk about your role more, Nicole, but I'm just going to say right off the bat that over my years in my work as a consultant, oftentimes I meet people who are in a job that are responsible to be a liaison, responsible to make connections, but I have never met anyone like you who is in fact a practitioner and really understands what it's like to be in the role. Having said that, could you explain just a little bit more how you understand your your role there at the center? so that we can know what you do. Absolutely. My entire career was in local government and uh, I had started from a clerk, moved my way up through secretary, treasurer, 
and then into a borough manager position in Lehigh, which is a relatively complex municipality. Being a public power community, I create the whole new element. We, are, we were one of 35 in the Commonwealth. Very large budget, large staff, lots of different dynamics that go on. In turn, I gained a lot of experience over my career working with elected officials and staff members, along with my degree in public administration and really having a passion for the field. So when I go out into the field, I'm able to use all of those skills and that experience to assist the municipalities that we contract with or the counties that we work with. Mm -hmm. And I understand just from my conversations with you both that while you have your separate roles and focus, that you relate to one another frequently. So you're office spaces near one another. And so if something's on your mind, you can talk about it. Is that accurately describe your situation? I believe so. Yes. We typically meet weekly and um, it, it's great to be able to share what goes on out in the world of local government and bring that back. And then it's also great to have somebody to, that has the knowledge that Professor Kincaid has yeah. as a resource. Yeah. No, I think that's a model that is perfect. I think that should be a regional concept that we have some <laughs> buddy that we can connect with who is looking at things from a different perspective, which is really what I think is so important about the two sectors coming together. Professor Kincaid has written extensively on the topic of federalism, which we're going to get to in just a moment, and has also served in role of advisor to a number of governments. And I want to ask him now if he would share because I think people would be interested to know some of the highlights of your engagements over the years in talking with different governments. So maybe this is a personal question, but I know our listeners would also appreciate what are some of the engagements you've had that have been a real highlight in your career? Some of the highlights were being in Moscow in 1991 during the transition from Mikhail Gorbachev to Boris Yeltsin. And I was there with a delegation of people from the U.S. government, including members of Congress. And uh, we were hoping uh, the purpose of the trip was to promote democracy. And that was what we would hope and would happen in Russia. But that was a fascinating and interesting time. I've also been in Ukraine, uh, I think 1995, I think was there for a while working on democratization projects in in Ukraine. So I'm quite familiar with uh, Kyiv. Uh, so very sorry to hear what's, what's happening in Ukraine since that time. But uh, democracy took a little bit better hold in Ukraine than it did in Russia. Another highlight was working in Iraq in 2005, helping on drafting the new constitution and uh, trying to work on setting up a kind of Center for Federalism in Iraq, since Iraq was moving in a federal direction and did adopt a federal, a federal constitution. And so that was a very interesting experience. And being in Nigeria in 1989, in the lead up to the 1993 constitution, the third Republic of Nigeria, that was a fascinating experience itself. And Nigeria is a very different kind of country. So those would be some examples, I think, of highlights in my experience trying to work on issues of federalism, decentralization, and democracy in other countries. That's fascinating. I would love to revisit that topic again, just because we are in such a 
time of change through all the various governments. And I think this is a good time for you to talk a little bit more about your research in federalism. And I'm speaking personally, but I have a limited understanding, and maybe others do as well, in terms of really what federalism is and how it impacts us. And if you could give us a sort of a, a mini lecture here and help us to understand why it's important today and particularly to local government. Federalism is a system of shared rule and self-rule in which um, you create a nation which consists of constituent states or provinces. This can be created by, as in the United States, different states coming together to form a union. What we've seen since World War II are cases where a unitary system decentralizes and devolves power to regions. An example would be Spain. And uh, um, so a federal system is created by uh, the devolution from a previously strong central government. And federalism became more popular, particularly after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And it's more than 40% of the world's people live in, under federal constitutions. And uh, it's a way of trying to promote unity while preserving diversity. Um, people have very different beliefs and uh, you can't make all decisions by a single central government. There's also diversity in any country in terms of geography and climate and resources and so on. And so allowing self-government among the units that constitute the federation is a very important issue. So what's unique about federalism is that both governments, both the national government and the constituent or state governments, have direct authority to legislate for individuals, but they do so in different spheres. They have different spheres of authority. So in our federal system, that federal government, for example, regulates interstate and foreign commerce, but the states regulate intrastate commerce within the states. And so we have kind of a division of responsibilities as well as a sharing of responsibilities. So particularly today, where you have countries with diverse ethnic, religious, and linguistic groups, federalism is often the way to go. Um, so you look at Canada, you know, if you've ever been to Quebec, everything's French. So that's their thing. And the Canadian Federation accommodates that. The same way in Spain, you have Catalonia, the Basque Country, <clears throat> Galicia other areas that have very distinct histories and identities. And so a federal arrangement makes sense in which these various groups can govern themselves on areas that are important to them while sharing in a single national government at the same time. So that's the thumbnail sketch of federalism. Thank you so much. So the regionalism that you see, for instance, in a Spain is simply a different arrangement. It's a it's federalism, but in a different pattern. Yeah, every federal system is somewhat unique in its own right. So you have to adapt to whatever the local circumstances. So in the United States, we do not have any state that's like Quebec or Catalonia. So our arrangement is a little bit different. And that also accounts for why some federal systems are a little bit more decentralized than others. And so, yes, in India, the states are organized along language lines, all right? So uh, very different from many other countries. So 
that's another variation on the federal theme. Yeah, I think that's very helpful to clarify my own mind that federalism doesn't pertain to an exact arrangement that the United States having a federalist, do you call it a federalist constitution? What's the appropriate way to use that word? Yeah, federal or federalist constitution. But it could look very different in a different place. It's still federalism. But the essential item is a system of shared rule and self-rule and a system where you have more than one government being able to make laws for people. It's just that they, the different governments have different responsibilities. Okay. That's very interesting. And so in looking at the local government system in this country, if you could say just a few words, and you did mention it in your summary, that there are some constraints in terms of what is in our constitution and what is the federal government responsibility versus the state government responsibility versus the local government responsibility. But we sometimes have some muddy areas. I think that's true. You can tell me if that's not true, but I'm suggesting that there are some muddy areas and that at the local government level, if you could just say a little bit more about what the constraints or rights are that are inherent in our system from the perspective of local government. Well, local governments sometimes feel like they're at the bottom of the food chain. (laughs) They're getting commandments from the federal government and state governments. But we do have a lot of local autonomy in the United States. Now, this does vary from state to state, depends on the state constitution. It depends on whether the state constitution provides for home rule, for example, which provides a little bit more autonomy than the traditional Dillon's rule of more constraints on local government. But the reality of that, you talked about muddy areas, and that's a good point. It's an interesting way to put it. Virtually all public policy today is intergovernmental. And that, as you see, the federal, state, and local governments involved in every policy area from domestic policy to foreign policy. And so our system is so intergovernmentalized today that it's become more difficult to say there are sharp divisions between the different governments as opposed to this kind of intergovernmental cooperation and sometimes coercion that occurs among the federal, state, and local government. I just recorded an interview with Mandy Cantlin, who is finished her doctorate at Westchester University. And she was talking about her understanding of the role of the people and that this was really intended from the very beginning and the creation of our constitution. And that coming back to her manager role at a township, she understands more fully the need to really bring people into the process, that it's a very integral part of public administration. And Nicole, you might want to respond to this as well, but let me just ask Professor Kincaid what is really needed at the local level to help people understand their role in the process. Local governments provide all the basic services that we get, fire protection, police protection, and so forth. So they, and that's not something the federal government does. So the role of the people is very important in shaping those services, how they're delivered, how much they're going to cost. And people can move from one jurisdiction to another if they want better services or different tax levels. 
you can move if you wish to. But yeah, our system is created so that the people have substantial potential to elect and control local government. At the same time, elect and control state government and state officials. The founders are very concerned also that the federal government be rooted in the people, but it's indirectly rooted in the people. Americans as a whole don't vote together for anything in the federal government. We vote separately for state senators, members of the House of Representatives, and we have an electoral college system of electing presidents. So we don't directly elect the president. So the framers, in that sense, didn't want a direct democracy, didn't feel like that would be good or work. And so we have a more indirect popular control of the federal government through the mechanisms of Congress and the presidency. And Nicole, in, in other words, do we need to engage people more in the process? Is there any other level of government that people can get more engaged than the local level? The local level is the level that people can reach out and touch. And they know their local elected officials and they typically know the administration. They typically know the employees, the volunteers. So it's all tied together. Yeah. I love this idea that was clarified by Professor Kincaid, that we can choose the place we wish to live and that one local government can be quite different from the next. And that's very empowering. Professor Kincaid, you mentioned in an earlier conversation that academia has its fashions that come and go, like other areas of life. And I just wonder where federalism is right now in that world. Is it something that's talked about as vigorously as it has been in the past or maybe more so today? Do you notice any trends? In the United States, it's talked about less than it was previously, because in today's era of polarization, yeah. both of the political parties want to nationalize as many things as they can. Where you find very vigorous discussions of federalism is in Asia and Africa, Latin America, because people are coping with these multinational, multi-ethnic, multicultural countries where federalism is a a mechanism for addressing those issues. We're also seeing it on a larger scale. The European Union is a federal arrangement, right? It's, it looks more, a little bit more like a confederation than it does a federation, but it's a new direction in federalism and potentially a model. The African Union, for example, is making an attempt to develop along the lines of the European Union. So that'll be a very interesting development. It's getting a lot more tension, <laughs> interestingly, outside of the United States than it is here in the States. Yeah. I think it's interesting you said about the nationalization of a lot of issues. And what I'm often from managers is that there has been a loss at the local level. The, the local news has become less prominent. We've lost a lot of our local news organizations. So everything is coming at people as national issues, and those are being discussed at the local level. I think what you're suggesting is by nationalizing issues, we see the federal government coming in to address issues that may be better suited at the state or local level. Is that something that you were suggesting that we see more of that nationalization, so the federal government getting involved at a state or local level? Yeah. That's very much true, and that's been going on for several decades now. And the political scientists have long talked about the nationalization of state elections. Mm -hmm. Now we're starting to see this seep into local elections, 
And we're also beginning to see the polarization in local politics that we've seen nationally and statewide. So those are, in my view, just very disturbing developments because they take people's attention away from really the basics of local government, which is to provide good public services, opportunities for people to participate in and so on. And so is there a democratic or Republican way to put out a fire? I don't know, but polarization leads in that kind of ridiculous battle over public services. I think managers are very interested to know if there is a prescription or if not a prescription, perhaps some conversations that we need to be having. And I would be very interested to know if there are some conversations that you think are not happening that should be happening at the local level that managers, local elected officials could be introducing to get us focused on the importance of local government engagement on local issues? Well, one of the things the Minor Center is working and moving toward is trying to promote more education, particularly for elected officials in local governments, as to what exactly are the functions of local governments and how they should carry out their responsibilities. And so um, we're hoping to move in that direction. Nicole, would you like to comment more on that? Sure. I will actually comment on a few things there. We spoke about polarization, and that is something in my career, I never was able to tell who was a Republican or a Democrat on my boards for, you know, at least 15 years. I, you could not tell. Most of the times they came together, the entire board would come together and they were there for the best interest of their community. And over the last five, six years, you were really starting to see it in the field, which adds a whole new complexity to the profession because you already have a stressful job. You already have the community to tend to. And then you have the board can make things more complicated if they don't understand their roles or they have a perception of their roles. So speaking to the education factor, it is really important. So in our services, we conduct the executive recruitments and we're typically working with the boards and helping them along the way understand their role, the manager's role, and the staff's role. It is happening on a level already when we're out there working with the elected officials and like Professor Kincaid added, we are looking at actually creating a program for that. We are starting with a program with Pennsylvania Municipal Electric Association, a governance 101 program for the elected officials of the 35 municipalities that have public power. Yeah. I think this is terrific. And anything that you want to put in the show notes to help people link to any resources there would be great. I think this is a question. I think there are elected officials all across Pennsylvania who are interested in how can we improve civics education in our communities? I think this is a big question I'm hearing. And uh, certainly for new members coming on, there's been discussion about what is the role of manager in helping the new elected body to fully understand their role. And sometimes managers aren't as comfortable in that role. And so I think that's an area where the minor center could be. And I know some of the, uh, the associations are uh, focused on this as well, but it takes a lot of effort to get people that are new to fully understand or get familiar with the local government structure. 
that is one of the skill sets that any manager really needs to have is to be able to adapt and work with the electives in the field. This is an area where the schools need to play a bigger role. And it's very disconcerting to see the most recent national assessment of history and civics education in K through 12 schools showed big drops in scores. And so our children are graduating from high school with very little understanding of civics, either writ large nationally or locally, and the schools could help. You know, one of the things of the minor center is an attempt to help our students understand that because they don't. And when we had a panel recently of city managers talking to students, we had a number of students say, wow, I never knew that. I never understood that. And it led, has led to some of them to want to be interns and get involved in local government. So that's our function. But other colleges and universities need to do that, but they don't. And to the extent they teach any civic engagement, it's in national politics, not local government. Yeah, this is so true and so important. I'm sure we could brainstorm ideas, and I would love to do that someday with a group of managers and elected officials and some professors and just think about how might this look if we were to really make a broad effort to push on this theme of more civics education. On campus, Professor Kincaid has had me come in and speak to his class about being a city manager and what the role is. And then also some other faculty has reached out about coming in. I think it's difficult to even teach local government in some levels because every local government is so different. Yeah. We have 2,500 local governments in the Commonwealth and 2,500 are different. So I think to be able to have the practitioner in the classroom also is helpful and it leaves an impact. Yeah. What it is that we're trying to do, I think, in my mind, is re-energize the population to get engaged at the local level, to understand the agency that they have in shaping local issues. And one of the conversations, for instance, that has come up in our episodes in this series is that we've had this sort of focus on getting more businesslike in our local government. And that sometimes in our effort to be more efficient, which is all good, we take away some of the processes. So we de-emphasize some of the processes that are really in instrumental to engagement. So an example would be nobody coming to local meetings. Now that can be because we're all very busy today and that could be because we can see it online if we want. But if we just get what we need from our local government by going onto a website or not really being concerned, just let them take care of it. We'll add our voice when we don't like it. But meanwhile, we're just going to stay home or not be necessarily engaged in what's going on. And that can result in, it's, I, shall I say, there could be unintended consequences at the local government level, people getting elected that maybe, I remember one time seeing the results of a local election and there were so few votes that it just took my breath away, that the people that were on the elected body were there with so few votes in the community. And that's, I think, some unintended consequences of just not making it as vital. And I think that's where, we, where my heart would be is just to make it feel vital again, because it's very profound how we have structured the government and that there is opportunities for those engagements. I want to talk a little bit about 
the way this said does impact us and the challenges facing local government. So we touched a little bit on the unfunded mandates in an earlier conversation that we had leading up to this podcast episode. And one of the things you said, Professor Kincaid, that we have been through this period of unfunded mandates for so long, and we're in this sort of odd turnabout right now where local governments are actually receiving a lot of funds, more than they have in the past. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about something that, that maybe local governments should be thinking about with respect to this influx of funding that's happening today. Well, there was a significant increase in funding as a result of the COVID crisis in an effort to assist state and local governments. And the federal government also increases funding for state and local governments as a counter-cyclical measure, because during a, a recession or a threatened recession, state and local governments cut spending and they cut employment. And that's contrary to the direction you want to go in to get out of a recession. So the federal government pours money in in a counter-cyclical effort to maintain state spending and and employment. But that COVID money is already going away. Now there is other long-term, longer-term money for the time being coming in. We have the uh, American Rescue Plan enacted under President Biden to tail into the COVID period. That was $1.9 trillion. And we have the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act which is $1 trillion. So that money is going to last over the next five or six years. But given the financial problems faced by the federal government and both the Congressional Budget Office and the General Accountability Office are saying that the federal financial pass is unsustainable, we have some drastic changes we need to make. The possibility that this kind of affluence is going to keep flowing from Washington, D.C., is starting to dry up as the federal government is going to face. So local governments and state governments need to make strategic decisions now as how best to invest this money for the long term in terms of appropriate infrastructure, improvements in education and so on, and minimize the amount of expenditures that are going to day-to-day -day operational expenses in favor of long-term capital investments. Mm -hmm. I wonder, Nicole, if you are seeing some changes in the way local governments are presenting budgets and if you would say that they're doing a better job of being transparent in general and helping the citizens understand exactly where monies are going. You had mentioned public meetings and... I feel if attendance is up at a public meeting, it is either because there is an item of contention or something that impacts everyone, or they do not trust their elected officials. They do not trust their local government. And that will lead to the public coming out. Our goal as managers is always to be as transparent as possible and put out as much information as you can. Now, granted, one budget from one municipality to another will look different. However, Putting the information out and explaining it in a way of which the general public can understand is so important. And to make it very clear on your website and to be sharing the document, it, it will increase the level of trust amongst the public. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, political science research is starting to show now that 
people have a higher level of trust in their local government if it has better online presence and services and it's easy to access. And so that seems to be a new way for local governments to reach out and build public trust. Yeah. It's taken some time, though. It hasn't been that long ago that I've worked with local governments and asked to see their budgets, and they get very leery about that. And it's been a certain type of project that I'm asked to come in and do more or less of an audit in the organization. And it's always an uncomfortable feeling when I find out that they really don't want to talk too much about what that those budget numbers are because they're not used to getting those questions. And the managers that are clear about the value of transparency and how that relates to trust are able to use that to an advantage with their elected officials in terms of guiding them. That this is what we need to do. We need to be more upfront with this. And we've seen that over the span of my career really get better. I think a manager would welcome the general public or the residents to come in to be able to answer questions. I know I always wanted to be able to share that information so they could understand it and take it out and share it in a way of which benefits the staff and the municipality. Yeah. Yeah. It's really makes a difference to have a professional manager that's able to guide that process as well. What I find so unique about the Minor Center is the close proximity of academics and practitioners in a space which makes it easy to have those conversations and to build context to understand a particular issue. And I wondered if Nicole would share some examples. If you could share with the audience just some projects where you both became involved and how that benefited the engagement. We were talking about Pennsylvania Municipal Electric Association, and they have an annual conference. So I was asked to speak and have a presentation. So I thought it would be great to invite Professor Kincaid in. Also, because we do not have a lot of the academic world at our conferences. So we talked about public power administration and the role of the elected officials, along with the levels of trust in government. So Professor Kincaid was able to speak on that, and he was so well-received by the audience. He was there virtually, but he was so well-received. And it was requested that we do something like that again in the future. So it was just a different approach that was very well-received. Yeah. I really like that example. I talked a little bit with you last time about privatization, and I think I am going to do another episode later this year on privatization. And the uptake of our conversation previously was more or less that local governments have the power to do this. And I just want to touch on that briefly. If a municipality deems it important to privatize, and there's going to be reasons for that, maybe you could say what would be the reasons why in privatization, a lot of times the public doesn't understand it. That's the primary point that I'm trying to make. Why is it that one place you go, they have privatized the water versus another that has a water system of its own? And it's clear that there's some economy of scale if you have an ability to privatize and continue to deliver in an efficient way that at a cost that's desirable. But I want to ask Professor Kincaid, to clarify that this is part of the structure of our state government, that the local governments have this ability to decide what services they provide or don't provide. I guess that's it in a simple question, just to clarify that. They don't necessarily have the authority to decide what services they provide. There may be some state-mandated services, but they have a lot of flexibility, usually, in how they produce those services. 
So you must provide for waste management, trash collection. So you could do that through a municipal trash department, buy your own trucks, which New York City still does, or as most local governments have done, they contract out to some company to come in and collect the trash. So the per, there's a dif difference between provision and production of public services. Provision is to provide the service like trash collection. Production is how you do it, whether under municipal ownership or a private company that you contract with. Okay. So there's no government at the state level or federal level that could come in and say, we're going to privatize all of the water services for this state because we think we can do a better job at providing consistent quality of water. They can't do that, or could they? The state can do anything at once in the final analysis. Politically speaking, though, I don't think a state would do that. Okay. Local governments are creatures of state government. And so in the final analysis, the state can do whatever it wants with respect to local governments. So it's really the politics that, that, that count here. And conversely, the, if the local government decides it's going to privatize a wastewater treatment, for instance, the state cannot interfere with that so long as the laws are on the books. It's say you can do that at the local level. The state could interfere if it wished. Usually they don't. Because we have a long tradition of allowing a lot of local autonomy. It's unlikely the state would get involved in that. Okay. I think to add to this, it's really interesting when you're when you are out in the field and talking to municipalities with how different everyone's business is. You know, you have some who are in the business of public safety and some who are not. Some who are in the business of public power or golf courses or swimming pool. Middletown Township in Bucks County has an orchard. One of the other municipalities I'm working with has a cemetery. So it is really interesting to see just the, some have airports, the levels or the businesses of which they can get involved in. Yeah. I really love that. And I also like this conversation because what you're getting at in, in some ways is the nuance and that there are areas that are more based on tradition and practice and that you're saying that the political process is such that we may not have it necessarily spelled out in law, but but there is a history, a tradition, a practice that is unlikely to be changed. I think that's an important point because it does open up the door for possibilities of change in some areas. I want to talk a little bit about regionalization for government services as an area of potential that also brings a lot of challenges. And I guess this was just a, a query because it has come up and we did a, a whole series on regional partnerships, whether it's police or sewer governments that partner like a center region and council of governments. Is there a role that minor center could play in helping governments understand the potential or the actual process of forming regional partnerships? I would think if anything, um, our role would really be in the education side, the yeah. education component of that. Sure. Because that, that starts with the understanding of the benefits of regionalization, along with making sure that you're bringing all of the resources to the table. Yeah. But something like police regionalization, that you're bringing the state experts in on that or those who have experience with it. So that component, I can see from the minor center being very helpful. Yeah. I think this is an area of partnership with academia. It, it does require thinking through what it means. It feels foreign. It feels strange to 
And if you're going to introduce it as a possibility at the local level, you need to be able to explain it. So it's helpful to have the state, but maybe some people don't trust the state. I remember the years of trying to regionalize police. Nobody trusted the state, but now they're coming around. And I think with the and Professor Kincaid, maybe you can comment on this, but it seems to me that this regionalization may offer governments some real leverage in going forward and delivery of services. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it can be a way of benefiting economies of scale and uh, more efficiency in public service provision. And, uh, and remember, there are different elements that can be regionalized. If you look at policing, the patrol function has a very small economy of scale, but crime scene investigation has a large economy of scale. Not everybody can afford a big CSI unit. So it's better to regionalize that, share that resource. So there are different aspects of policing that can be regionalized more than other aspects. And, and that's something else that these regional things that are successful tend to be very functionally specific. And I think is important to keep in mind. Yeah. Structure and governance. These are issues that are not easy to grasp for many of us. I think it's really helpful to have the resources at the Miner Center as you do. Now, Nicole, I want to focus in on some of the things that you are doing. I know executive searches is one area. I know placing interns. Those are two key areas that I hear people talk about. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the services that you're really honed in on there? Sure. So we provide program services and training to county and local governments. On campus, there's an annual forum, which has been on pods after COVID. So we'll be reactivating that where we bring in local officials from the Southeast region and the Lehigh Valley area. We also have workshops. We are in the process of planning a broadband workshop and working with DCED on that. We also... We'll do strategic planning or financial analysis or administrative analysis as another resource. And the executive recruitments are our most used service. We are regularly contacted to assist municipalities with placing managers and police chief, finance directors, and directors of different departments. So that is our most used service. And what else do we do? We had the careers night for the students to introduce them to the world of management. And then we also have the internship, which will work with our local contacts to create an internship for the students for a summer program. Yeah, that's a very dynamic program that you offer. And um, we can... oh, we're also working with the city of Easton on an economic development project with a business recruitment strategy. So it depends on what we're called for and if we're able to assist and have the capacity to do so at the time. Okay. And we'll put in the link for the Miner Center. And if somebody wants to reach out to you, can they find your email phone number there at that site? I, our website is very extensive and all of our contact information is available on our website, along with a detailed explanation of the services and programs and training that we provide. We're also on LinkedIn and on Instagram. So you know, on social media aspect is out there and has been a large resource. I think that's actually how we met, Nancy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I... I'd have to think about that for a moment, but you can't miss you, Nicole. You're just really a, a light, and it's really great to to have you so comfortable out and in front like you are. This has been a really rich conversation, and I, I do hope we can have some more conversations in the future. And I want to close with a question for each of you. 
I'd like to ask Professor Kincaid if you could travel to any country right now safely and cost is not an obstacle, just to study what is going on in the government, what country would you like to travel to and why? Oh, it would probably be Ethiopia. It is a federal country experimenting with what's called ethnic federalism, but it's just been through a terrible civil war, which is still dragging on in some respects. So there are major challenges to maintaining that federal system and maintaining it as a democratic system. So that would be, I think, my first choice for those reasons. That's fascinating. I would never have thought of Ethiopia. Thank you for that. And Nicole, I have a question for you as well in closing, and I want you to think about how you would describe a dream project to work on with local government. What would it look like and what would make it attractive to you? So I think to start, I feel as though I really have my dream job and that is why that light comes through because I'm a lifelong learner and I love the field. So it's the perfect combination of both worlds. So I'll start by saying I have the dream job as far as that goes. As far as dream project, I my thesis was on succession planning in local government and with the workforce crisis that we have as it is right now, that is very much so what we do. We are part of the pipeline. But I would love to have a, a local government academy, if you will, or a way to bring the practitioners and the academics together to be able to create this new generation of managers. So that, that would be very important to me. That's very exciting. I want to have succession planning as a topic in July. So maybe you and I should have another conversation. And I just appreciate so much your time today. It's been fascinating. Is there anything we missed that you hoped we'd cover that we didn't, we didn't hit on? You I think know? we did a pretty good job, Nancy. And I'd like to thank you very much for inviting us to be on this podcast. I look forward to listening to the final result. We, one thing we left out of the conversation that we really didn't focus on a lot was the students and working with the students. So I would just like to add, I've been working with the students as much as I can. We just assisted with coordinating an event to Harrisburg for them to advocate on behalf of the Association of Independent Colleges and Universities of Pennsylvania. And also educating them and seeing their interests and the way that they think and how they're looking at the future and how it could really involve local government. That is so rewarding to be able to have that conduit and that connection to be able to share the information because I think it really strikes that interest and it's a matter of educating everyone on the field. And I think in turn, we realize the importance of it because usually students will want to do something very big on a national level, not realizing really the effective change that they can make on a local level. That's a great point. Yeah, I think that's the future, how to build that pipeline and to get much more diverse ideas going. Thanks so much, and we'll be in touch soon. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Bye-bye. Bye.